Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ce qui se passe dans les bois est un véritable podcast sur la criminalité. Nous discutons d'événements qui sont souvent de nature violente. La discrétion de l'auditeur est conseillée. What Happens in the Woods is a true crime podcast. We discuss events that are often violent in nature. Listener's discretion is advised. think in the 21st century, rape and assault would be an infrequent occurrence. You would be dead wrong. Over the past 20 plus years, focus has been placed on education to help victims, as well as stricter laws formed to help dissuade people from committing this type of crime. More and more victims have come forward with their stories of survival. However, the stigma is still alive and well in groups of people who turn a blind eye to the reality of this crime. Our story this episode deals with violent crimes against women in the quaint and idyllic town of Spokane, Washington. Month after month, young women were being attacked on the safe streets in a prestigious neighborhood, choked, beaten, and raped by a very sick individual. These crimes occurred in a period of time in the late 1970s and early 1980s, a time when, unfortunately, the old prejudices would be alive and well. Taking this into account, it is a wonder that any of the victims chose to file complaints. And no matter if they did or didn't, all of them faced their lives after their attacks as bravely as they could. The world may never know the wounds they carry deep inside. The city of Spokane was struck with terror that such a person could be on the loose. There was also a sense of denial that crimes of this nature couldn't possibly be taking place in such a beautiful and affluent area known as South Hill. This area was for old society, the rich families with legacies from the barons of industry who made money in lumber, mining, and railways. Surely not one of their own could be the rapist in question. We want to give fair warning at this time that this episode may be especially triggering due to its topic of rape and assault. We understand if you cannot listen and hope to catch you on our next episode. This is True Crime Podcast, What Happens in the Woods, with your host, Justin Bryce. Let's get started. Hello and welcome everyone. Hello, Bryce. Hello. <laughs> Had yourself on mute there? Yes. Didn't think you were talking this episode or something? No, I'm talking. Okay. We'll see about that. 
I never know. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully everybody is is good. 2022 is treating everyone well so far. We're almost done with January. It's crazy. So far. So far. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, and I don't know, I'll ask you in a second if you have updates. <laughs> Go ahead and mention. <laughs> um, so we we mentioned last year that we are taking part of the Pacific Northwest True Crime Fest. That's coming up. And tickets are officially on sale. So you can buy tickets. I Hope to see anybody who listens to us that, you know, is local in the Washington area, Oregon area. Like, I hope you guys come and meet us. And, you know, we want to see people face to face. And and this is just, it's a really big deal for us. Yeah. And it's it's exciting, but it's also, like, nerve-wracking. <laughs> so, is like, your support would be amazing if you're you know if you're going to be in the area in october it's october 8th and 9th um but head on to the to the website pacific uh, northwest true crime fest and and get your tickets so we want to see you guys we'll link it on the website we will link it on the website yeah now that they're officially open pnw true crime fest Oh, that's right. Yeah, they do shorten it. Otherwise, that would be very long. It would be a huge name. Yeah. Just as long as what happens in the woods. Dot no. com. No. Dot org. No. Dot eu. It's not long. Stop it. <laughs> okay, not as long. It's not that bad. Okay. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that when, I, when we <laughs> were like, what should we name the podcast? I wasn't thinking, what would it be in a website address? No, I know. I was like... What relates to the Pacific Northwest and murder? The woods. The yeah. woodsin. Sure. Yeah. All right. Anyways, moving on. Do you have any updates, Bryce? Welcome back. Canada. Canada. Canada's in the lead. Our old friends from the north. That's correct. I I hope to visit you soon. Yes. Yes. I'm I'm really looking forward to since we're so close. So close. I want to go. I actually want to take the ferry. Good I think we should do that. the ferry. I'll, I'll meet you there. Why? You won't do the ferry? I'll, I'll meet you there. I mean, fine. I'll go on the ferry by myself. I really want to do it at least once. Maybe not the first time we go, but I do want to try the ferry. Okay. And why not? Why not? Why the hell not? If anyone else has done it, please let us know. Yeah, or if you're from Canada and you have like insider tips of like where we should go that is close to the Washington Canadian border, let us know because I know nothing. I've never been and I want to fix that. So yeah, any any insider info is always appreciated. All right, any other updates? No. You sure? Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get into this episode that I have for you. Let's do it. Okay. So this episode, we are going to tackle a very widely known rapist from Spokane, Washington. Mm. 
Um, I just want to put it out there that, you know, rape and assault on women is a very sensitive subject. And we know that the triggering, this is triggering to, yeah. to people. And we, we understand. So, you know, if, if you need to skip this episode, we get it. So with fair warning, we're going back to Spokane in the late 1970s. So just a little bit, if you don't know, Spokane is a major city in eastern Washington. It's very close to the border of Idaho, and it is very widely known um, for having the reputation of being very conservative, very um, conformist. And one description that I've read is that it's, quote, the anti-Seattle, which I would 100% agree with. And, and that's fine. I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way. I just, I agree with that. Um, one of the most notable neighborhoods in Spokane is South Hill. And this was where the cream of Spokane society lived in their very discreet but stately homes. To this day, it is still considered a very affluent part of town. And in its earlier years, after being settled by, you know, Europeans that came, indigenous population that was pushed out, Large industry came in, and by the 1900s, Spokane was like the center for every major railway in the West Coast. Every, every one of them ended there, apparently, which you would not know by today, um, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but it was a hub for lumber, mining, ar- agricultural farmlands, which it's still primarily, I think that's a lot of what surrounds it. In the 1970s, they went through a revitalization and all the major tracks, the rail, like the railway was taken out and ripped up to make way for like cultivated gardens and parks along the Spokane River. Mm-hmm. Part of that revitalization included being home to the 1974 World's Fair, the Expo 74. And it is just after this that the unspeakable crimes would begin to take place in this, you know, very small town feeling city where people were still leaving their doors unlocked, windows open, cars, you know, left as were nobody felt anything other than safe. Yeah. So from what I can tell, the first reported rape was in April of 1978 is just before midnight, a young woman, um, she was 19 years old, she was brutally attacked while uh, she was walking home from a bar. She and her husband were going through kind of a rough patch in their relationship, and mm-hmm. they had had a fight, which led to her leaving on her own to walk a few miles home. Yeah. When a man jumped out of nowhere and grabbed her by her arms, it, it just completely took her by surprise. And of course, she screamed as anyone would, but um, the man covered her mouth with his hand and told her that if she didn't scream, he would remove it. He did, but she screamed again. This time, he shoved his fingers into her mouth as far as they could go, choking her. The man forced her in between two homes into a backyard, and when she fell, he just kept pulling her, dragging her by her hair. It was very violent. He was pulling her across uh, wet grass and he managed to get her into a very dark area of the yard. She couldn't really overpower him and she kind of gave up fighting when he began ripping open her clothing. And his hand during this whole time was down her throat. And 
this would become an MO. Um, the man began to aggressively fondle her breast while also performing oral sex on her. And then he seemed to have an issue with keeping his uh, penis erect, but eventually he did manage to proceed to force intercourse on her. And if all of this is not bad enough, he was talking to her the entire time that this act lasted, asking her questions like, was she married? Did she like to fuck? Do you like this? And it, it, just assorted questions that you you wouldn't think that a, a person would ask while doing this. Yeah, Just like he was inquisitive. He finished um, by, you know, rubbing himself and ejaculating on her jeans. And when he was done, he told her not to say anything or he would kill her. And then he was gone. And after the fear and surprise had worn off, she managed to get herself up and she headed to the nearest home that she could, you know, that she was by to get help. She knocked on several doors before somebody let her in for help and she called the police. The only information she was able to provide to the police was that the man was tall. He had dark blonde hair. It was about to his shoulders. He had a mustache and he was just very clean. He smelled clean. He It smelled like he had just showered. And that from what she could tell, like everything on him just smelled clean and fresh. She thought that he was probably in his mid-20s. And she wasn't really able to get a very good look at him because it's the middle of the night yeah. and it was dark. She did notice, though, that how he spoke was that it wasn't slang, really. It was, you know, it was a very eloquent way of speaking. Yeah. So seven months later, a call came in to the police from a young woman who had been assaulted on the street. It was November of 1978. The man had been tall with medium curly hair, a dirty blonde color. As he passed the woman on the street, he reached out and grabbed her breast. She cried out, and there happened to be a car that was driving by at the same time, so he kind of got spooked off and you know ran away. Mm -hmm. Several people observed this. He was not shy about trying to do this around people. Yeah. And... Um, they tried to follow this man after he ran off, but no one was able to catch up to him. Uh, police were called, but the unknown man was long gone by the time they got there. However, witnesses had seen the man get into a car with specialized plates. Um, this car was a silver Pontiac Grand Prix, and the license plate read Disco. So the word D-I-S-C-O. <laughs> They also had, I know, right? Mm. It's 1978. It's 1970. It's, it's that time. Yeah. Um, they also had a description to go off. When the case hit the desk of a detective who was quickly able to get info on the car and who it was registered to, because of manpower limits and the constant case overload, the detective never saw it through and marked the report inactive. And I'm not going to divulge too much on this just yet because it, um, it it ties in in another area. But if things had gone a different way, uh, you know, if this detective had seen it through and really um, investigated. Well, it's not that he didn't investigate. It's that during this time and, and I can't speak to now, but what I from what I understand, they were very underfunded yeah. police department. Um, because the higher ups in the city, 
and the socialites in the city at that time liked that they were considered a safe town. Yeah. And so the there was pressure to not report crimes that happened in the newspapers. And that happened with this. It was it was months before it was actually reported that there was this stuff going on. And so they did not fund the police department because they didn't want the police presence to be out there. Yeah. And it spooked people off from being in their town. It's such a weird thing. It's a very weird way of thinking about that. You would think that you would want police presence so that if crime did happen, it, it was, was nipped deterrent. in the bud. Yeah. Why would you not fund the department that keeps you safe? Yeah. You just don't want to hear about it. That's basically what it was. They didn't want to hear about it. It didn't exist. They lived in their bubbles. And that was that. They didn't want to hear about the bad yeah. things in the world. So he had put in due diligence and he was going to go forward with, you know, what he needed to do, but he started getting case overload. And so a, a higher up, you know, type of, of crime happened and he had to drop it. So he marked priority. it higher priority. Yeah. yeah. He had to mark it inactive and just move on. And at that time, you know, a, a, a random man grabbing somebody on the street. Yeah. That's it's assault. Yeah. But when some something comes in that, you know, is, you know, a stabbing or a or major crime, a major crime. Yeah. It's just not that that's not a made. I mean, it's not. No, a, it's a it's it's a crime and it's horrible. Like, yeah. Like if there was a murder that happened, I'm sure it would take place over. a Right. That's over that. unfortunate. Yeah. Is that when you've got underfunded, underfunded staff, staff and yeah. you've got, you know, these detectives were overworked. Something's got to give. Yeah. So, yeah, and I will get into that because I I think that it's just unfortunate in this case and there were eyes on this particular situation because it could have ended in a way different result Yeah. for, for you know, and you'll understand. In the late evening of April 1979, um, April 30th, a woman reported an attack while jogging in the South Hill neighborhood. As she came to an intersection, she came across a man who attempted to grab and drag her away while trying to shove his fingers in her mouth. Luckily, she was able to break free and she got away, just as that previous victim on the street had done. She was also able to describe him. The unknown attacker was a tall white male, around 180 pounds. He had medium length hair that had been styled, possibly permed, and it was a light brown color. He was described as dressed in a jeans, a shirt, and a khaki green military jacket. Again, very clean, very put together looking man. That same month, a pregnant woman working in a massage parlor named the Tiger's Den was assaulted at closing time by a man who had waited until she was alone. So inside or just inside? Oh, yeah. After that, there were daily obscene phone calls that were being made to that massage parlor. That same massage parlor would again be the scene of another assault on June 17th, 1979. Two women were working that afternoon when a very sketchy man came in that set them on edge. They said they were too busy to take him in. So he just stood outside waiting, watching the comings and goings. When the last client left, the man came back in and they knew he had been watching everyone go. So they reluctantly took his business 
and it was a big mistake. Now, when I say massage parlor, I mean exactly what you think I mean. There were happy endings involved. Oh. So uh, the women were allowed to set their own rules with that, Mm -hmm. and they had their own comfort level with what they wanted to do. Yeah. And there were set prices that that were just known prices. But, you know, they, they were very careful because of this clean cut image that the town wanted. They were very careful that there were certain people that they wouldn't offer those things to. Yeah. But just just so that everybody's on the same page, that is exactly what you're thinking is what it was. So after he followed one woman back to a room, to one of the Whirlpool rooms, He quickly attacked her. He removed her clothing. He shoved a towel down her throat so she couldn't talk and he tied her up with tape that he had brought. But he didn't assault her further after um, while he was, you know, tying her up and and shoving the towel down her throat. She was trying to tell him that she was recovering from surgery. So he did, you know, end up making it so that she couldn't talk. She was tied up with tape, but he did not assault her any further. Oh, He then went back up front to the other woman and said something was wrong with the woman that he had gone to the back room with. As she moved toward the room where they went, he grabs her, drags her into a different room. She's yelling for her coworker, not knowing if she's dead or injured, but there was no answer because she had been tied up and gagged. The man told her to shut up and dragged her, you know, into the room where he proceeded to grab her by her hair and he ripped her clothing off. She fought back as much as she could, but she was punished every time he was punching her in the face straight on every time she made a noise. He attempted to get her to perform oral sex on him, but she struggled and he wasn't fully erect. Then he began talking and it wasn't to her, though. And it wasn't really, it's like there was an invisible person in the room that he was talking to. Yeah. And he started yelling things like, quote, you dirty bitch, quote, you whore, while repeatedly jerking at himself. He ends up ejaculating on her leg, but not able to complete intercourse. Okay. Yeah. And then to her, he begins apologizing. And he helped to clean her up. He cleaned the room out of their, you know, their struggle. He also gets her dress the best that he can without undoing the tape that bound her. He tells her to stay in the room until he leaves or he'll kill her. She does as she's told and she waits to hear the bell over the door, you know, ring to signal that somebody's gone out the door. Yeah. As soon as she can get out of the room, she frantically starts trying to find her coworker and the phone rings. And it was like she was just so traumatized. She hadn't thought to go to the phone first. She was just thinking of her coworker and, you know, where was her coworker and what had happened to her. And she gets on the phone and she starts saying, you know, help us. Somebody's attacked us. Somebody was here. We've been attacked. Send help to whoever it was. She didn't even know. Yeah. All she hears is a man's low laughter. So she drops the phone and she goes back to finding her her friend, um, her coworker. Wow. So her coworker was found in the room, bound and gagged, but otherwise unharmed. The two women were scared shitless. They yeah, literally just didn't know what to do because, yeah, you know, it they, must have they been were like a, a desperate situation because, like, you know, after they're both assaulted, were tied up, you know, and then, then she's like, "Oh, I should have called someone," and it's it's like 
laughing. And it's him. It's it's whoever had been calling them on the phone, which they never can confirm who, you know, is it him? Is it, is it the person that attacked them or not? But chances are, yes, I would say. And, um, that's horrible. Yeah. You know, that's horrible. It just seems like he went someplace, made a phone call from someplace just to get on the phone and laugh. Well, they had pay phones then. They had pay phones and they were everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they, they eventually are able to, um, you know, get out of the room their bookkeeper ends up showing up and gets on the phone, calls the police right away. Yeah. They discover that they had been robbed. He cleaned after himself. So he cleaned the room before he left the victim. And then he went out into the front area and cleaned up and robbed them. <laughs> so robbed the cash register so he, and robbed them personally, took oh. money out of their purses. But oh, then he wow. put everything back the way it was. Well, he's like cleaning up after himself. No right. fingerprints. No. Yeah. So they don't really, I mean, the police are like, okay, well, it, they're, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think this, but I'm sure at that time the police came and showed up and were like, you guys are no better than prostitutes. You're no better than sex yeah. workers we're not really going to take this seriously because we know that you guys provide this service like everybody does. So I just, I love that in the police, we know what you do, but we're just going to turn a blind eye, but you got, you know, but you got attacked, you got attacked and that sucks. Cause that's what you that do. Sucks. Yeah. You yeah. deserve that. I, I don't know because none of these women, well, I'll get to that, but um, I don't, I don't know how seriously they took this, you know? Yeah. So the rapist actually had no idea that a couple days later, his name was tossed around by the workers at the massage parlors. There was four in the, in the town. They were all owned by the same group. A man who fit the description had been a steady customer at a parlor called the bath. Another woman piped up that he was a good tipper. So it couldn't be that guy. And it was dismissed. It was dismissed by the women. They were like, okay, well, you know, if he, if he treats everybody well and he's a good tipper and he's a regular someplace, then it can't be him. A month later, a woman reported getting away from a man who tried to attack her and grab her by the throat. It was late the night of July 30th, 1979 in South Hill. She gave a very similar description to the others, younger white male, tall with brown hair, about shoulder length. His clothing was similar to ones worn by the man at the massage parlor. No public announcement was ever made of the description. After all of these, I, we've got rapes and we've got assaults. The, the police and the news are not getting out. You know, hey, be on the lookout. Yeah. None of it. Nothing. On August 15th, a woman was running in her South Hill neighborhood when she noticed a man keeping pace with her on the opposite side of the street. He eventually crossed over to her side and then passed by when she began to slow down to a walk. And then he was suddenly walking out from behind a hedge, reaching out for her. He smiled and he grabbed her breast. She managed to push him off and she ran home and he didn't follow for whatever reason. When she called the police and she gave a description, the officer was concerned, but no help was sent because they were swamped. Since she wasn't hurt, he told her that he would file this as an indecent liberties report. He also said, but hey, watch out, because women in the area were getting raped. And she was shocked, because that's the first that she had heard of it. 
Yeah. And he told her she was one of the lucky few that got away. The very next day, a young woman who was not as lucky was raped. It happened about a mile from where she had been assaulted, from where the the woman who the police told you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. The next reported rape happened on September 7th. A young 18-year-old student was walking home from her um, or walking from her parents' home to her apartment around 11 p.m. And she had done this a lot. It was about 12-minute walk and she frequently did this, never had any problems. She quickly noticed a man walking towards her that set her on edge and as, you know, she thought he would pass by, he lunged at her legs and knocked her down. He kept trying to shove something in her mouth, but she clenched her teeth and wouldn't let him. Yeah. Nearby lights came on from a porch and someone yelled out their window, you know, are you all right? What's going on? And the attacker ended up running off. The young student was hurt, but not seriously. The woman who had yelled out the window got a decent look at the man who she described as six foot tall with brown hair, wearing jeans and a blue jacket. Just days later, close to where the attack had taken place, the young victim claimed that the attacker came up behind her in broad daylight and said, whoa, baby. She got away. She called the police. But even after giving a description of his clothing and the man, he was not found. Yeah. And there was nothing further that came of that. I mean, this just emboldens him. Like, if you don't put that information out there. Right. It just emboldens him because he's just like, yeah, I'm not getting caught. Uh, right. I touch breasts and like nothing's happened. No one's come after me. Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. It's just going to get more brazen and more bold. Right. Huh. One of the few victims that was comfortable enough to report her attack and not use any anonymous name or request to remain unnamed was a radio broadcaster. Oh. Um, yeah. Sun, she, her, her call name was Sunshine uh, Shelley. And she worked for the local radio station, KJRB. And Shelly Monahan was just 21 years old. She was working her dream job. She was loving her life. And she was raped by the serial rapist. On September 9th, 1979, Shelly was leaving her job late that night. And as she reached her car, a man stepped out of the shadows and grabbed her by her neck. He told her he would kill her if she made a noise. The assailant shoved his hand in her mouth and she bit him, which caused him to lose his temper. She was repeatedly punched in her face. Her eyes and nose and mouth were a bloody mess. And she was literally choking on her own blood as he was choking her. She struggled um, because he kept trying to turn her on her stomach. And she was choking or she was trying to turn on her stomach because she was choking and she was trying to, but he kept flipping her off of her stomach. Yeah. He ripped most of her clothing off. The rapist tried to force intercourse on her, but he could not get an erection. He instead rubbed himself against her and using his hands and mouth, you know, to do other things. He then asked her to do the oddest thing. He wanted her to urinate on herself. Claiming, quote, it's a little kinky, isn't it? Makes you feel dirty. He told her to masturbate while he did the same. And he was talking to her and asking some other questions. Eventually he finished and then it just kind of went quiet. The man cuddled next to her, basically. 
and proceeded to stroke her backside and tell her that he masturbated to her when she was on the radio. So he knew who she was. Yes. He also apologized for hurting her and that he would hate for this to happen to her again. She should be more careful. What the fuck is going on? She gave the police as much information as she could, what she remembered about his features and what he was wearing. It just wasn't much because it was uh, pitch black dark. She got off of work. It was like, I think, 11 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And where the radio tower was, was basically like a, a field. Yeah. it w- There wasn't even really a parking lot. It was just kind of loose gravel. And she had been asking her, you know, the like manager for either security or locked doors or lights, like lights out in the area where they park their cars. Yeah. And it was pitch black and it, it, it never, it didn't happen until after she was raped that of they in, initiated any security measures. Um, He dragged her off into like a, a field next to the radio station. So it wasn't even, it wasn't even in the parking lot. It was like next to it. There was just this, a, uh, field open field yeah and the only other person working was the person who was on the radio and would have had headphones in been in a soundproof room yeah that was the only other person in the building they never would have heard her scream ever no yeah so she wasn't able to provide much information also he beat the shit out of her and so you know her her eyes her her nose was broken um, her eyes swelled up. It, she just wasn't able to provide much information. She did notice that he smelled freshly cleaned. Hmm. More and more reports continued to come in from women all over the South Hill and other areas of Spokane. Two women were able to lock themselves in their cars while a man you know, came up and ended up masturbating, rubbing himself on the car window. And I don't, I, I don't know why you didn't turn on your car and gun it. I would drive over a motherfucker. Yeah. I, I, I just think they were so scared that it didn't occur to them that they were in a vehicle and could get away. They were just so, and, and this guy's obviously not shy. He's, you know, right in front of them. Another was grabbed as she exited her car and she was dragged into nearby bushes. Her attacker was very talkative, asked questions like, how do you like this? And do you ever masturbate? She described him as a white male around 24 years old, tall with brown hair, wearing jogging gear, and he smelled very clean. As the weeks went on, women were being attacked frequently. These attacks were all similarly described, you know, the, the person, the MO, hand down the throat, very talkative during the act, violent but remorseful afterwards, mostly unable to complete the act of, uh, you know, of the sexual act with penetration. Yeah. The papers and the news were hardly reporting on these attacks. If they were, they weren't making like any front page news whatsoever. Which again, probably just emboldened him. Right. Yeah. Nobody's talking about it. So why would you not continue? Nobody's talking about it. The police couldn't keep up with the demand of how many reports they were getting. And they didn't have like a dedicated team um, who handled rapes. So attempted rapes were being handled by, you know, whoever got the call, rapes by whoever, assaults by another group. 
And the underaged attacks that were going on were completely different, at- like entity altogether. Yeah. None of the the data got correlated. Yeah. So there are probably a lot of attacks that people didn't report. Number one, so we never know. You know, we'll never know those. And number two, there might have been reports that were mishandled. That you know, people did report, but they were mishandled, and so they never got put you know, as possibly being because of this attacker, because of this rapist. By the end of 1979, 69 rapes had been reported for the year. That was about three times the normal reported amount. That's just reported three times. On January 6, 1980, a news article ran in the Sportsman Review, which read, quote, a rapist who masquerades as a jogger may be responsible for a number of attacks on women in southwest Spokane. They quoted Detective Captain Richard Olberding saying they didn't want to cause a panic, and that's why they weren't putting out any information. They didn't want Spokane to be, you know, panicked during an uproar over this this possibility of this rapist they simply recommended that women be more aware only jog in the daytime go out in groups he also apparently suggested um, which might have been off the record quote women should lay back and enjoy it although he later stated that it was a joke that's not fucking funny (laughs) not even one bit yeah tell that to your wife or your you know your daughter just lay back and and or tell that to your mother or your sister or Or your, your sister yeah Yeah. Gossip then started to take place between the people in South Hill of the attacks. Women who had been attacked confided in their close friends. Police and law enforcement who lived in the area told neighbors to be on the lookout and keep their wives and young young daughters safe. The police tried to get decoys out and asked for volunteers to work that detail. Surprisingly, there were a number of people who signed up to work after hours on, on trying to find this person. And not only that, but try to keep women safe. Yeah. They even had wives and girlfriends of officers um, and detectives who, you know, were walking out in the areas where the rapist was known to attack and riding along bus lines where women had been grabbed. They were out as decoys, putting themselves out there because they didn't have the, the manpower and they didn't have the budget. Yeah. Yeah. This was all volunteer. After months, the rapes still continued and the decoys just weren't working for whatever reason. One patrol woman thought that they um, had a potential lead when she spotted a parked car in an odd area that caught her attention. And there was a young man quickly getting into it who had just come off of a trail in South Hill and he was dressed like a jogger. The car was a silver Chevy Citation. And when the plates were run, it turned up that a 62-year-old owner it was registered to. So she said, you know, I dismissed it because it couldn't be their man. They're looking for a 20 something year old. So the info was just brushed aside, but luck seemed to be on the Spokane PD's side as just after the new year, they noticed the young man from a South Hill family had been charged with a a rape in a nearby town, college town of a co-ed 23 year old, John Blake Mouncey just happened to live across the street from where the last rape was reported to have happened on December 29th in 1979. Coincidence? Or not? We'll talk more about that when we return from this break. Oh. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. While John Blake Mouncey, who went by Blake, had been charged with rape of a young college girl and was awaiting trial, police had noticed a possible link to the South Hill rapist. A young woman who had been attacked who just lived across the street from him. That was the last reported case in December of 1979. Even more than that, a 16-year-old girl who was attacked and raped on January 2nd was in that area. And after being shown photos of him, she was able to pull his photo out of a lineup, but the catch was they had used hypnosis. She stated that her attacker looked like him just without the double chin. Now, Blake did not fit the other descriptions. He was not tall. He was not as slender. His hair was not, you know, that shade. His hair was black. No one would have described him as a jogger by any means. But since that information was scattered across all the different reports and they had had a photo ID made by a victim, they were sure that he was their man. Plus, he had voluntarily taken a lie detector test and he failed it. Oh. Yeah. Um, And, you know, that was a big one back in the day. Lie detector tests were, that was infallible. Infallible, yeah. So he was arrested and also charged with the January 2nd attack. And the news ran with it. Now they decide, let's talk about these rapes. Now. Right. Reports were everywhere that this kid was the man, you know, he was the one responsible for the, quote, series of attacks on women in the southwestern Spokane area this winter. That's what the news led with. Mm -hmm. With the information provided, the public was very attuned to the trial and its outcome On January 14th, he was found guilty of third-degree rape of the college student, and he was sent for further evaluation at Western State Hospital in Tacoma. To the community, this was not acceptable. Word got out that there would be five additional charges that he could face for other attacks on women. They felt that he should have immediately been sentenced with the maximum penalty. His family began to receive threats, His sister was even threatened with being raped herself. Right. Let's rape the sisters, the the sister of the rapist. But they never believed that he was responsible for the other charges. His family did not. Yeah. Um, His mother had even formed a theory that the real rapist had framed her son in an attempt to evade scrutiny. Right. I don't know if, you know, hey, if the rapist is caught, who's going to continue to look for another one? Nobody. They already don't have the manpower, and the news was already not reporting it. After being cleared at Western State Hospital and not being labeled as a sexual psychopath on his evaluation, Blake was sent back to Spokane for sentencing in July of 1980. He was sentenced to serve eight months in jail, half of which was commuted for time served, and three years of probation. I understand the frustration completely 
he that is a light sentence yeah i don't i it's it's bullshit and rightfully so the community was in an uproar i mean this was a slap on the wrist and everyone everyone was just convinced he is the rapist who had been attacking women for almost two years what nobody seemed to realize or wanted to realize or even put together was that while Blake Mouncey was sitting at Western State Hospital being evaluated, more rapes happened. Oh. They never stopped. Wow. He's not your man. But it's an easy way to peg him. Right. And it, it was an easy way for the police to be like, well, we've done our job. And the media to say, you know, we didn't want to cause this this huge distress, but look, everybody, he's found. It's yeah. it's You're safe again. One woman was attacked twice, raped in February and July of the same year. Being the badass survivor that she was, when the man came across her the second time, she asked him if he had been with her before in February. And the question caught her attacker off guard. He said, oh, no, that wouldn't be me. That's too cold in February. Cold for what? <laughs> yeah. She also played along with his odd questioning and she tried to keep the man calm. The first time she had been attacked, it was very violent and she didn't want to go through that again. It took her a long time to heal. It was an odd encounter that ended with him making chit chat and her requesting that if he was going to do this again, he bring, bring a blanket for his victim. Oh, how thoughtful. Right. I, you know, I, I don't I don't even know the mind space you would have to be in when this happens to you. I don't know. And I can't even presume to know what these women were thinking or how they felt or how they feel now. Yeah. I think she was just like, you know, fuck if if I got to go through this, I, I'm going to I'm going to do it the best way that I possibly can. Yeah. I, I just don't know. And so, yeah, he, she was like, you know, this was uncomfortable. Bring a fucking blanket. I, I, I just, I don't know. It's, it's. She actually said that. It, she didn't say it that oh. way. I, that's me. I would, you know, that's some shit that I would say, but you know, she, she was like, if you're, you know, bring a blanket with you next time you're going to do this is, is basically what she said. Yeah. Yeah. And then she got herself dressed and she actually ended up kissing him on the cheek and walking back to her apartment. Okay. Yeah. And she says, you know, even she says, I don't know why I did that. I really don't. I, I, I was so traumatized by the first attack. I, I don't know what led me to act that way the second time, like to, to do what I did and say what I said. Yeah. She had reported her first rape and she was about to do the same when she got home. But, you know, the process of everything came back to her. And obviously reporting it didn't change the fact was he was still at large. Yeah. This man was still out raping and she honestly figured it wasn't worth it. And she never made the call and reported the second oh, rape. Oh my God. Yeah. And I don't think that I blame her in one way or the other. I, I, I can't say that I would think that my reporting it again would make any difference. It didn't make a fucking bit of difference the first time. No. Another woman he came across had survived rape on other occasions, but not by him. This poor woman, this badass woman, had been raped, I believe it was three other times. Wow. Yeah. And she just kind of took it as her lot in life. 
I, she just really didn't. I, it just had happened, and That's she just kept thinking, mindset. "What the fuck am I doing wrong?" Yeah, yeah. She also chose to take a different approach um, when the man found her on a walk in August of 1980. So after her experiences, she was reading about why this might happen and why an attacker might choose to do this. And with everything that she read, it was about power and control, not necessarily about sex. It was using the act of sex to control a person. Yeah. So she decided, I need to take back my control. When the man came out from behind a bush and approached her, she tried to be forceful and yelled at him for, you know, to stay back. Yeah. Tried to make it so that, you know, if she made a loud enough commotion, he would pass on and think that she wasn't worth it. Yeah. That didn't work. And he still kept coming towards her. She then asked what he was doing in the bushes. And he responded that he was taking a piss. And then they struck up a conversation. He was walking alongside her and asking her all sorts of questions, even asked if she thought that he was handsome, and she played the part well. When he forced a kiss on her, she didn't pull back. When he fondled her, she let him. He told her that he wanted to engage in oral sex with her, and she instead offered to give him oral sex. He didn't know what to do. (laughs) She flipped the table on him completely. Yeah. He pulled out his penis and she said, quote, isn't that nice? They began to argue about who was going to go down on who. Okay. Right. In the end, she made it home. She was not assaulted. The man tried one last time to kiss her. I I can't say she wasn't assaulted. She wasn't sexually assaulted. She was assaulted. He did grab her, grabbed her breast. He tried one last time to give her a kiss and, you know, lifted up his shirt and showed her his abs. And she said that she told him she was so turned on that she didn't know what to do with herself. And the man was just so thoroughly confused at what happened. He ended up giving her his business card. No. And told her to call him if she needed anything at all. Money a friend, somebody to talk to, anything. He said, quote, a person like you should never be lonely. I think you're one of the most wonderful women I've ever met. She's a fucking genius. I can't say that that would work in any other time. I don't know. I The the fates were with her that day. Um, Not even that. I just think she had, I mean, it's sad to say, but she had gone through it so many times right. that she just was like, fuck it, I'm going to do it a different way. Right. I mean, honestly, she was like, I, I've already gone through the worst things that I can go through. What's mm-hmm. what's the other worst thing that can happen if it happens again? Yeah. I'm going to try to switch the situation up. Yeah. And it worked for her. I'm, I can't say that she wasn't probably scared out of her mind. <laughs> but and I, I don't recommend this as a blueprint. No, no not at all. But I, I do think she... Yeah, I it think she just it worked for her in that moment. And that and has her, a lot to yeah. do with his mindset as well as hers. her mindset. Yeah. Yeah. So she would spot this man over the next several days near the place where he had come out of the bushes. And even though she knew the man's name and she could give a very good description of him, she never called the police. What? It seemed unlikely that the man who was attacking women would just hand over his card to her and reveal himself. And she just didn't think it was him. Yeah. More women were being attacked continuously in the months that followed. The attacker would catch women unaware coming off the bus or out for a jog. 
and would grab them, immediately shove a hand wearing a leather glove or even an oven mitt in some cases. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, shove that down their throats to silence them. Upon examining one victim, an emergency room doctor said her throat looked like it had been attacked with sandpaper. Oh, shit. Among her other injuries. The attacks were brutal, but it wasn't just women, you know, older women. It was teenage girls that were also being attacked and raped. The youngest victim, known victim, would be just 14. Oh, my God. And when asked if the man had been able to have an orgasm, she wasn't even aware of what that meant. Yeah. She didn't know. Finally, the news started taking this seriously. Attacks, you know, were being reported on on a daily in the newspaper. This was daily news now. No one could ignore the fact that this was happening anymore. Their man, you know, Blake Mouncey obviously wasn't their man. And there was somebody out there who was doing this. The Spokesman Review was again the paper that chose to report a story announcing that a horrible specter was back on the South Hill. Sales skyrocketed on personal handguns, mm-hmm. pepper spray, as well as knives. Classes were offered for women's defense. The local uh, like rape counseling center was overwhelmed, inundated with, with asks for counseling as well as requests for how do we protect ourselves? Yeah. What do we do? Men, you know, took to escorting their family members everywhere that they could. Yeah. And surprisingly enough, there were women who were able to fend off the attacker, some with pepper spray. One young woman was able to do it with some very well-placed kicks. And another woman basically hit him with a tennis racket. Nice. Yeah. After the man asked if she wanted to touch his exposed penis. The attacks never slowed down. None of what anybody was doing was a deterrent at all. So a second attempt at a special rape squad was was taken by the Spokane PD. The more attention brought on this, the more the community was like, handle this shit. Take yeah. care of it. Patrols were beefed and um, different tactics for tracking were used. Up until this time, police weren't even able to say that this was the work of one attacker. The descriptions were varied, but close enough. Um, however, the MO was consistent throughout the attacks. In an attempt to get a firm description, the police took a risk and had victims come in to be hypnotized to see if they could recall more details. And they call it a sop, like soft hypnosis. Yeah. Not, you know, with the guy standing in front of a group of people and then uh, waving a, a pocket watch and they're all going to start clucking like chickens when the bell rings or something. This is like a meditative state, basically. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the most effective thing to do. And then the FBI created a profile. And this is, this is what they got. Quote, the assailant was an underachiever who was totally dominated, probably by one parent. He was motivated by rage, not lust. And his main intent was to degrade the victim and thus degrade the person who dominated him. He was a power rapist with a special hatred for small to medium-sized, dark-haired women. He came from a well-to-do family and didn't work with his hands. He was a mama's boy, even though he was in his late 20s or early 30s, and he was becoming increasingly violent from rape to rape and should be considered extremely dangerous. 
the FBI um, that made up this profile, the agent also warned that eventually the man was going to kill. The rapes were no longer going to be enough. Yeah. there. I mean, it's, there's always, if anything, since we started this, it's always been levels. Right. And like they've escalated everything. Yeah. Very rarely does this do things violently, like violent crimes don't happen out of nowhere for no reason. There's always, there's either progression as it no longer satisfies whatever need or urge they have. Yeah. Or there is something psychologically that they don't see it as wrong and they get away with it as long as they can get away with it, basically. And it, it's it's more of a game of what can I get away with? Yeah. And, and you know, where's the next thrill? What yeah, can I, I add on say to it's, this? Yeah. They're always looking for the escalation. Yeah. The new rush. Right. And eventually, yeah, it leads to the, the killing. Right. And then it, you know, in cases like the Green River Killer, it leads to brutalization of, of a woman who's been killed. Yeah. And I I just don't know. Where do you, where do you go after that? I mean, that's the lowest of the low. I, I just don't even know. It's well, he did it. Remember he burned them that's afterwards. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. By the end of 1980, there had been a total of 127 rapes. Jesus. Right. So it went from, you know, around 30 one year to 69 the next to 127. Yeah, it's definitely getting bolder. Right. And those are not all him. It's just, it's definitely telling of, there was some shit going on in this area at the time. And it was out of control. Yeah. And people were trying to get away with it. And, you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's out of control at this point. Twice in the area of where women had been raped, a small light colored car had been reported as being seen by witnesses. So there are people seeing this shit. There are people seeing things going on. There's just no correlation of that information. Yeah. Once, um, one report was parked, it was parked outside of a school where a woman had been attacked on a jogging track while running and again several times over a period of days in a neighborhood where a young mother um, was waiting for the city bus she had been attacked in the early morning the school's groundskeeper knew that the car was a newer uh, chevy citation actually walked up to it and was like this must be a new kind of car because he didn't recognize it yeah and and read what type it was, what, you know, the make and model were on the car. The second witness confirmed seeing that type of car in the neighborhood the day of the last rape that was reported. And this was as solid a lead as the team had had in two years. The lead detectives working on checking plates in the state of, you know, Chevy citations, as well as calling around dealerships to where, you know, the car had been sold locally. It was a long ass list that they went through. And it took a couple of weeks to go through each person on the list from three different dealerships. But they had one key piece of info to go on. The car that they were looking for had yellowish plates. And at that time, that would be a vanity plate. So a plate that somebody paid money to have, you know. Yeah a special personalized plate. Yeah. 
So they knew that they were looking for somebody who had probably paid money for a vanity plate. And finally, after two years of nothing to go on, victim after victim, after the entire city of Spokane was wondering if the crimes would ever stop, they found the unlikeliest of suspects. One of the last names on the list of registered owners to Chevy Chevy citations was Gordon H. Coe, but his age didn't match their witness descriptions. He was 64 years old. However, the detective looking into this was like, maybe he's got a son or somebody younger in the family that drives his car soon, you know, sometimes around. So soon they come across his son, Frederick H. Coe, was a closer match in age, still a little too old if they were going on the descriptions, but certainly worth looking into. Mm -hmm. He found a photo from 1971 of Frederick Coe and It was a long shot, but the detective had the victim from the uh, running track. That was the last known victim that Uh was reported. Go through a photo lineup to see if she would identify Frederick Coe from that lineup. She immediately did. Wow. Immediately. She claimed that the slant of his eyes and the coldness along with the shape of his jaw were something she would never forget. A second victim quickly identified him through a photo lineup as well. So background investigation and surveillance began on Frederick Coe, who also went by the name Kevin. So it turned out Frederick Harlan Coe was son to Gordon Coe, the managing editor of the Chronicle newspaper. No. Yeah. Gordon was one of Spokane's elite. He came from one of the older families in the area who happened to live in the South Hill. In the late 1940s, he married Ruth who was every bit a social climber, having come from a blue-collar family that was hit hard by the Depression. They, uh, after they married, had two children together, a daughter, Kathleen, and son, Frederick. Mm -hmm. Kathleen was by far the favorite of her mother. But with her son, there was a very odd relationship. If ever there should be a case study done of a mother and a son and the psychological effects of the relationship, it should be these two. Okay. I would pay good money to get a look at her psyche valve. I wish that I could. Because this woman is a fucking trip. Really? Yeah. So I don't know too much about his childhood because anything um, that was ever mentioned was that his childhood was idyllic, that it was perfect, that there was just... It was just so good. There was always, you know, their family was just the typical loving family. That was her account. That's his account. Oh. Yeah. I'm sure, though, that knowing what I have read and know now, it it was filled with a lot of mental and emotional abuse for him on a daily basis. Given how their relationship was in his adulthood, it's, it's just a safe bet. So the two acted almost like girlfriend and boyfriend. They acted almost like a couple outside of any sexual relationship. It was a very codependent girlfriend, boyfriend, abusive relationship, mentally abusive relationship. With him and his mom. Yes. Oh, okay. um, they would hold each other. They would. They were always obsessing over each other's looks and outfits and hair and clothing. They had pet nicknames for one another. Gross. 
Yeah. Another commonality between mother and son were their tempers. Fred um, had moved away in the 60s to make it big in California and somehow ended up as a radio DJ in Las Vegas. After divorcing his wife, they both ended up back in Spokane in the late 1970s. The two were reconciling. However, Ruth absolutely hated his ex-wife. Okay. Absolutely hated her. Called her white trash, called her whore, all you name it, all over. And this is when the rapes started beginning. When it was discovered that the two were, you know, reconciling, she had a temper tantrum and she took a baseball bat to his car twice. Crazy. So as I mentioned, they acted like they were a dating couple. They also fought like they were in a lover's quarrel. They would call each other horrible names, tell each other to fuck off. He called her a bitch. They would yell and scream over the phone. She would show up at his work to harass him, call all over town to find him, call his friends, call anywhere where he might be. And then she would engage in fights over the phone with him wherever he was. It's disgusting behavior. Nobody ever was like, you two need to knock it the fuck off. Yeah. Nobody. The dad, like her husband, nobody. Everybody thought it was odd. They just thought it was, you know, their way of being just eccentric. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is, you couldn't argue with them because they knew. They knew everything. They were smarter than you and they could talk circles around you if you were in, not in agreement with them. And if you were strong enough to even bother to try to, to talk to them about things, they, they would shut you down. They would shut you down and they just, she would go nonstop in a conversation and not, not let anybody interrupt her. And it, mm. it was just, and he was the same way. They just were right. And that was it. Completely narcissistic behavior. Yeah. So, you know, even Gordon, he just simply acted as if nothing was an issue. He wouldn't intercede. He wouldn't, he wouldn't ever tell them to stop nothing. They just kind of all put up with it because, you know, Ruth had this thyroid problem and it made her a little off is, is, you know, basically what they, they said. Ruth would always claim that Kathleen was quote, the good children in the plural. She's one child. She's one yeah. person. Uh, while Fred was her Coco, he was Coco or simply son, just son, not my son, not our son, son. And on good, that's good days. On, you know, bad days, it was he was a deadbeat loser or, you know, a good for nothing, lazy asshole. Yeah. She would belittle him and do it with a smile the entire time. Is very backhanded, domineering. And he always sought her approval on everything. But like, you know, a petulant child, if he couldn't get what he wanted, he went behind her back and did it anyways. Yeah. The lies and the stories that these two would tell are definitely case studies for narcissistic, pathological liar. She was from Spokane, born and raised. She was so obsessed with Gone with the Wind that she at times would speak as if she was from the South and talk about the, you know, the Civil War as if she actually fucking lived through it. Yeah. And she would choose to take on this persona of, of 
you know, this Southern Belle. Mm-hmm. She's from Spokane. Yeah. She'd never been to the South. This was the kind of stuff that they would do. And it was like these little things that would happen that nobody ever questioned them. Yeah. So as with anything else, you get braver, you start telling more lies. Their view of reality was just, it was very skewed. They were also very compulsive. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. They were very compulsive and ob- obsessive with their behavior, and it showed. Fred was constantly obsessed with his looks, and he was going to the salon like clockwork to get his hair done in whatever the latest style was. So he haircuts, perms, colors, it didn't matter. He's constantly changing his looks. Mm-hmm. When he couldn't change his hairstyle, he wore wigs. Oh. He also loved to dress his best um, most of the time and would be seen in three-piece suits that were, you know, not common in Spokane. A lot of people commented that he always dressed like he was meant for bigger things. He was meant to be in a a, a more populated area like New York or LA, more, yeah. you know, fashion. Met- metropolitan yeah. area. But, it, you know, it didn't matter. He had to have the best. And his mother was the same. She was constantly obsessing over her looks, what she ate, what, you know, what jewelry she was wearing. She would be dressed to the nines just to sit at home all day. But then for Fred, there were low times when he didn't shower and he barely kept up his appearance. He would eat like a glutton. He would pack on pounds. It would last only a few days or, you know, maybe a week. And then he would be back on this new diet fad because apparently he had all these allergies. He had all these allergies and he could only eat certain food. And when, you know, when he wasn't eating the right food, his allergies were so much more pronounced and horrible. Mm. So he would be on these weird diets and he would get bloated and then he would drop weight and then he would bloat back up again and he would drop weight. It very, I mean, that's definitely a mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. With all of his spending to look good, Fred or, you know, Kevin, as he preferred to go by after he moved back to Spokane from California, he had a bit of a money problem, namely that he didn't make any. He was relying on daddy. Daddy. Yeah. He supposedly was, you know, working in real estate and he had all these great plans that he was going to be this next big real estate star. And yeah, he only sold maybe two houses from what I understand in the three years of working. And one of them was to his parents. (laughs) Okay. Yep. So daddy funded his lifestyles. Cars were leased for him. Housing was found. Credit cards were given to him bank checks to his dad's account, whatever, you know, whatever he wanted. And when Ruth would find out, she would go on a tirade of how worthless he was and the money would come to an end and, you know, it would start back up again. He'd just call dad and dad would start it again. So imagine her distress when uh, Fred was arrested and charged with petty theft from a local grocery store for some steaks and Perrier water. She was so livid that he had brought so much shame to the family. But to anyone who would listen, you know, son had been framed. And this was a miscarriage of justice. Right. Yeah. So while he's stringing along his ex-wife, he also began to date a Spokane native named Virginia Perham. And the two began a very slow relationship, but eventually they moved in together. In February of 1981, when police are closing in on Fred, you know, Kevin Co., as mm-hmm. he goes by now, he was driving daddy's car, about to be evicted from his home. He was fired from his third real estate job, and he was bankrupt. 
His girlfriend was fed up with his unusual behavior. She was looking for a way out. He was gone at random times. He would go out, you know, quote unquote, jogging, be like 3 a.m. They fought constantly about nothing and everything. He was so charming at the beginning of their relationship, but at this point he was just combative and irate. If she dared to ask any questions, he would tell her to mind her own business. Most often when he came home from, you know, his jogging, quote unquote, he would head straight down to the basement and wash his clothes. And she'd, you know, try to follow him. He would shove her back upstairs or he would yell at her to leave him alone. Mm -hmm. He'd slam the door behind her. So the relationship was going south and Jenny just, she couldn't keep up. And she decided, you know, she needed to figure out what what to do and, and leave. Yeah. So meanwhile, the police took what they had to the DA and they thought they would get the okay for an arrest warrant. Instead, they ended up obtaining a warrant to place a tracking device on the Chevy (laughs) Citation that Co drove around town. And this is, you're laughing because you know, but this is laughable because it's not like today where it's tracked in real time. No, yeah. And how big was this thing? It was, it was big. Like I remember like everything in the eighties was huge. No, it was, it was big. And it, it had to be tracked by like, you had to be within a certain range. Radio distance. Yeah. And so they had, you know, uh, it's like all the typical sitcoms that you would think of from the eighties where it's like, you know, Starsky and Hutch and all of those, like the A team, they're sitting in the van. Yeah tracking something following the signal. <laughs> and they're following the signal it's not even i mean that they could have it could have been on anything they don't even know they they're just tracking the signal trying to stay back so that they're not seen it it was it was great technology for then it's laughable now yeah yeah which is weird because if two people identified him how is that not what kind of fucking judge was like, well, I don't think we have. The DA didn't think that it was enough evidence because they didn't have, they they didn't, the things that they would normally want to go on would be mm. like physical evidence. Yeah. And there was none. There was no DNA oh, um, at, at that time. No, you know? yeah, I know. There, there wasn't. And I'm the, sure also if you, you would have identified more victims like if you would have got them all together i'm sure they would have been like yep that's our guy yep that's our guy right so and they do that eventually but yeah at this point in time they wanted a little they didn't want to fuck it up again i think is really what it went down to the da was like i don't know that i can it this is very circumstantial i Mm. don't know if i can convict and i don't want to get this guy in here and have him be the actual South Hill rapist and not convict him. So they really just wanted, they wanted some very solid evidence they before take their time so that more shit happened and, you know, not tell anyone, you know, Hey, let me just fuck this up some more by. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's not tell the public. Well, that that kind of already that was out. the The spokesman review was not having that shit. the The Chronicle was not reporting any of this, hardly at all. But they had set up like a a hotline number that you could call with any tips. And if yeah. you caught, if you were responsible for a good tip and it caught the guy, there was a thousand dollar reward. Where do you think that hotline number went to? Yeah, Dad. Dad, it it literally was his his line at the newspaper. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, they weren't trying to report on it. And 
the Spoke Summer Review was was putting out more, you know, news stories on it as they could. But eventually the police were like, we're not giving you the information anymore. So they were kind of tied, you know. Mm -hmm. So they put this tracking device on his car, on that Chevy Citation. Mm Mm-hmm. And they had a hell of a time tracking him. He would be frequently speeding, going 50 plus in a residential area. He would zig and zag everywhere. He'd be heading west and then he'd flip quickly around and go east, tracking back the way he came. And of course, they couldn't just drop what they were doing and do that, the same maneuvers that he's doing, because then they're tailing him, you know? I, he must have had some idea that he was being followed or he he knew police were closing in or, or gut feeling or something because it took weeks of surveillance to convince the DA to get a warrant made out for his arrest. And, and he wanted to attack, but they never caught him trying to attack. Yeah. So on Tuesday, March 10th of 1981, Frederick Coe was arrested at the new realtor's office where he supposedly was, you know, working on charges for first degree rape of a victim who had identified him from his picture. Of course, you know, it's all a mistake, according to Coe. Mm -hmm. All a mistake. All of it. At the same time as that, his girlfriend, uh, Virginia, was at home answering the door to their home as police showed her a search warrant to enter and collect evidence. Mm Mm-hmm. There were bags and bags of items and clothing that were taken, specifically any jogging clothes, leather gloves, and oven mitts. And she was just floored. She did not see that coming. And as soon as they came in and she was looking at the warrant and what it was for, she immediately, I mean, her heart sunk, but she was like, this all makes sense. This all makes fucking sense. So she's interviewed and she fully cooperates with them. She even says that she will testify if they want her to. Um, she's not sure how good of a you know witness, witness she would yeah. be. but she, Like what would she have? She wasn't there for any of it. No, but she could attest to his clothing um, oh, because, yeah. you know, some of the women had said that he wore a gray jogging like sweatshirt and jogging pants and, yeah. you know, certain things. One victim was was certain that he was wearing like a down a red down jacket. It mm-hmm. actually happened to be Jenny's red down jacket. Ooh. And she was able to identify that yes, he he had worn that one time. So she I mean, she had information, especially like days and times when he was there and not there and you know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So Remember the the uh, Grand Prix that had been cited after the report was made by a young woman in 1978 after yeah. being groped on the street? Yeah. And that detective had been able to find that the car was indeed leased to Fred Coe. Oh. It eventually was repossessed, but it was leased in Fred Coe's name and matched the P.O. box that listed, you know, this fake corporation that he had called Spokane Metro Growth Organization. Mm-hmm. He used this organization as a, I'm not even sure to be certain, but, you know, it was supposed to be a way to keep Spokane revitalized. And he was, he was like the silent front man of it. And he would write into, you know, like letters to the editors of the paper and sign it under this anonymous name. And he, he used it to, I think, try to get inside information for things Mm -hmm. 
but it's 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 basically a, a false front company. Yeah. So they find that you know the PO box listed was for that Spokane Metro Growth Organization. From there, they found that Frederick Carlin Co. had a small file with a couple of disturbing in- entries into it. Uh-oh. So this is where shit started for him. Aside from some property damage in his teenage years, there were four reports of a sexual nature. The first was in 1965. Coe would have been 18 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. It was mentioned as carnal, quote, carnal knowledge, but no charges were filed. So the person made the report and then decided not to move forward with filing any charges. Yeah. The next came a year later with charges for a possible assault, but again, no charges were made. The third occurrence was for charges of indecent liberties and first-degree burglary in 1971. However, those charges were later dropped. The last was a report made by an airline attendant that in 1977, she swore on you know an affidavit that Frederick Coe had entered a woman's restroom, got in a stall, stood on the toilet, looked over the wall that separated it from the next stall, and told the woman going to the bathroom, quote, you sure have a nice cunt. Okay. Right. Um, charges were never filed in this incident either. Huh. It absolutely blows my mind that all four of those... Nobody pressed. Nobody, you know, they came to the police and I I bet you they were dissuaded. Oh, he's a nice kid. Oh, this is, you know, Gordon Coe's son. I'm sure it was a mistake. I 100% believe that they were, they didn't want to press the issue because they were dissuaded from doing it mm-hmm. or they were embarrassed. And it's really a shame because- while these are in a file, there's there's no convictions of anything. There's no, you know, there's there's no accountability on his part. So he just got to do whatever the fuck he wanted and nobody was gonna nobody was gonna tell him no. You know? Yeah. There was there was just nothing. So unfortunately, like I said, that uh detective had to close the case basically the dots were just never connected and police you know were never he never was formally charged really with anything everything got dropped so that detective just closed his case when when that car was reported and if anybody had come you know if he had taken that to anybody and said hey we need to look at this guy Mm -hmm. it things could have stopped right then and there because there was enough of a background history on him that if anybody had looked at these charges that had been, you know, reports that had been made and no, and the charges weren't followed through with, anybody who looked at that might have known that he really was the rapist and stopped it before it really got as serious it was as it was. It it really could have stopped there, and it's just a shame that 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 detective, you know, another like a homicide came across his desk and he had he had to close it. He had to close the the background, looking into the background of Frederick Coe. And he just got to go on doing whatever the fuck he wanted. 
So police got ready to have the victims of the South Hill rapists come in and go through lineups to identify their attacker. And there were so many possible victims that they were lined up against hallways, quarters, waiting their turn. And I can't imagine, you know, having to relive probably like the worst thing that happened to them, knowing that they might be looking at their attacker. Yeah. So in the end, six victims would positively ID Fred Coe as the man responsible for their rapes and assaults. He denied, of course, all of the crimes. Of course he did. He was framed. Right. And I'm he, sure his mom would back him up too. Oh yeah, there's tons <laughs> more coming on that. He was released on $35,000 bail. Jeez. Yeah. Which daddy paid. Of course. So the trial began in July of 1981 after a jury had to be brought in from Seattle due to how widespread now the, you know, the story was mm -hmm. and the infamy of the South Hill rapist and the notoriety of the co-family. His family were the only members of the defense who testified for him, his sister, his mom, and his dad. He and his mom concocted this wild story. Um, that allegedly he was out watching women because he and Ruth were trying to capture this rapist on their own. Oh. Right. So Fred would go out jogging and Ruth would follow in the car and they would track the bus line where the rapist was known to try to find victims. Right. Ruth insisted that they only wanted to help and that he would be there was no way that he was out early morning or out late at night because he was at her house for breakfast and he also came for dinner every day how convenient every day every day like clockwork every damn day okay yeah the prosecution had his girlfriend virginia as well as the six victims testifying against frederick the jury was able to find fred co guilty of four out of the six charges Ruth, of course, was livid because, you know, son couldn't possibly be guilty for this. No. This was a setup. Heck yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Gordon and his sister Kathleen, were they were sad. Fred never showed any emotion at all. He was not remorseful. He denied any claims of his wrongdoing. And it it was, there was just no emotion there from him whatsoever. Hmm. On a side note, there was a news article that I read that the one of the public defenders on his case was a, a, a woman. She was charged with a DUI the night of his conviction after her car went off the road and was in like a, a body of water, a lake or a river of some kind. Uh -huh. She was pissed that she lost this case and she went on Bender. And <laughs> I was like, that's... Of all the things that you would do as a as a public defender, you're going to go out and have a DUI? Yeah. Okay. I mean, make good choices, people. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So when it came to the sentencing, the family was worried that Fred would go to prison for the rest of his life, um, obviously. Yeah. And they were so worried about him. Like, his safety in prison, just he couldn't he couldn't go to prison. He was not going to be safe. You know, the, the other prisoners would gang up on him, and that's just, it's horrible. It's horrible. So they, they tried, you know, getting a new lawyer in, and they tried to work on a new angle. So... Being committed to a hospital wasn't an option as he had not admitted to any guilt. So they had a psychologist evaluate Fred and convinced him to admit to one of the rapes. 
So the psychologist would recommend being committed to Western State Hospital for treatment as a sexual psychopath. However, this judge was not having it. Yeah. Fred was sentenced to four prison terms, one for 20 years, one for 25 years, one for 30 years, and a life sentence, all to be served concurrently. Sweet. He was sent to Walla Walla State Penitentiary in October of 1981. And of course, Fred Coe made it known to anyone listening he would be appealing the decision. Of course he would. So now this should be over and done, right? We've got a conviction. He's behind bars. Mm -hmm. But there's a little more. While Fred is getting accustomed to his new life behind bars, Ruth is going absolutely fucking nuts. Yeah. It gets out that she wants the prosecuting attorney and the judge to pay. There was information that came into police that Ruth was looking to take a hit out on the two men for what they did to her son. My poor son. So police set her up with an undercover cop who plays her game and gets her to set up a hired hit. Nice. She hands over a deposit of $500 of the $4,000 that he says is his fee and is recorded by this undercover cop saying, quote, I want the prosecutor out and I want the judge out. When clarifying what, you know, she means, she says, quote, gone, dead. If I had my druthers, I'd have that prosecutor just made a complete vegetable so that he could never, ever be anything but a vegetable so that they had to care for him forever. And he lived on and on that way. And the judge, I'd like him gone, dead. They've recorded her saying this. She was clear of mind. Very, very clear of mind. Hmm. Needless to say, she's arrested and charged with soliciting first degree murder. Uh, what? Yeah. Like, uh, you know, mother like son. Well, she knew there was no way that he was getting out. So she had to go in. Right. She had to be with him. That's right. <laughs> My baby. Yeah. Um, her trial. It, it sounds like a, f- a fucking play. And what I read. Um, so I'll, I'll give you guys some information on that. But. It, it they liken it to a Greek tragedy, and it sounds just like this. Like it's an incestuous thing with her son. Mm-hmm. Then you know, there's the the vengeance, and and it it comes back on her tenfold. And I mean, it it really does sound like fucking Shakespeare or something. So she claims that she was just so fucked up by son's arrest uh-huh. and the trial. And all the hardships her family had gone through this time. And, you know, she just, she went crazy. She lost her mind. She was right. inconsolable. It was just too hard to bear. So they had about four different psychologists testify that she had had a long history of depression and hormonal imbalance and that she just couldn't handle all of the stress. And she made a poor decision in judgment. The judge did find her guilty but basically gave her the the lightest sentencing ever known to fucking man. Essentially, the l- lowest sentence that she could have gotten was 20 years. Uh-huh. He commuted it. How? He commuted it. She ends up on six months of a work release. It's unreal how you solicit a person to hire, you know, to hire them to kill two people, not yeah. just one. Two and a judge people. at that. A judge and, and a, judge a prosecutor. Sentence. And then a different judge commuted the sentence. Yeah, the minimum would have been like five years in jail. 
Mm. So yeah, she does her work release. It's, it's absolutely stupid. So we'll get to the appeals now. There's, there's appeals from Frederick Kevin Co. The 1984 appeal, the four convictions were overturned due to the police using hypnosis on the victims. Oh, come on. Yeah. The ordeal began all over again for the victims. The second trial was held in Seattle as it was felt that there was still too much animosity towards the co-family in Spokane. And, you know, the mom had just gone through her her mental anguish and and her trial and her trial. So they moved it. She actually I I guess it was more of a hearing because she didn't have a jury. It was just a judge. Oh, yeah. On February 12th, 1985, Fred Coe was once again convicted of first degree rape for three of the victims. He was sentenced to serve a life sentence and sent back to Walla Walla. Bye. A second appeal was sent to the Washington State Supreme Court mm-hmm. due to the same issue of hypnosis being used. Fred Coe was not going to stop until he had no other options. So he told anyone and everyone that he was just the scapegoat and that he held no guilt in these crimes. He was forced to admit to the one rape to try to get a light, lighter sentencing. That was just a, you know, it was a it was a bargain, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The victims were again called on to testify. In 1988, he got away with some bullshit just like mom did. During his third trial, all but one conviction was reversed. This is the only victim who had identified him all those years prior, Julie Hermia. She had not been subjected to the hypnosis. She was the sole conviction of this man out of possibly 40 or more rapes, various other assaults, six original charges and three trials, only one conviction held. He still refused to admit any guilt. And because of that, he was sentenced to serve 25 years and would not be released on parole. Good. In 2006, the 25 years was up. But the state of Washington realized that this man who was, you know, unrepentant and uninterested in seeking treatment could be set free to terrorize any of his previous victims Oh yeah, and a new generation of women. The state attorney filed a petition for a civil commitment trial in order to have Coe civilly committed as a sexually violent predator. In 2008, Frederick Harlan Coe was declared a sexually violent predator and sent to live in the isolated McNeil Islands. Special Commitment Center. And because he refuses help and treatment and Mm -hmm. has never fully taken responsibility for any of the assaults or rapes and the attempts to commit those crimes, he will remain there indefinitely until he dies. Until they shut down the island. I hope they never do. Me too. Every recent report I watched or read stated that the brave women who testified against Fred Coe are always prepared to do so again. If called upon, all of the women who survived his attacks and attempts have spent their lives in varying degrees of fear and anger, all because of this one man. Yeah. And if he were to ever claim responsibility for the crimes and seek treatment, he could be eligible for release from the commitment center. And it's a day that none of the victims want to see come. I will say, though, I, I highly doubt that it will ever happen. He is 75 years old. He's he's in 12 days from the release of this episode. He will turn 75. I highly doubt that there will be a change because they don't just let you out. It's years of treatment and yeah. they evaluate to see if you're making progress. 
So it's not like he could say, you know what? Yep, guys, it was me. And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, you've been here a long time. We'll let you go. Yeah. No, it's it's years of treatment and therapy. And yeah, you're not just let go from that commitment center. Yeah. So I have no doubt that he will not be going anywhere anytime soon. Well, good. Yeah. So the the book that I read for this was called Son, A Psychopath and His Victims by Jack Olson, who is not Greg Olson. They're not the same people, but they do know each other. Oh. Jack Olson was basically a, a precursor author to Greg Olson, who has written quite a few books up here, you know, based on the Pacific Northwest yeah. and crimes. Jack Olson it was the same type of author and he was just older generation. So that book was actually written in 1984. So a lot of the information that I have was him talking to these people in firsthand accounts right when the first appeal would have gone in for, for to look at. Mm-hmm. And at that time, a lot of these women still did not want their identity known. Mm-hmm. So pretty much Everybody he in that book, he used, you know, an anonymous name, basically. He used a, a, a fake a, name. A pseudonym. A pseudonym. Uh, Shelly Monahan, the the woman that was working at, at the radio station, mm-hmm. it really was one of a handful of a few who, her name was out there from the get-go, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. From this book, there was a TV movie called Sins of the Mother that came out in 1991. Mm-hmm. And it has Elizabeth Montgomery that plays Ruth. And we all know her and love her as Samantha from Bewitched. Yeah. Yeah. But when she plays bad, she plays bad. Yeah. Like when she did the Lizzie Borden movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched this one, the Sins of the Mother. Mm-hmm. Damn, that woman <laughs> is, she's a bad bitch, man. She... I, and I say that in the utmost of respect to her because I her love her to hate her. I yeah. I I mean I love watching Bewitched, but I love to hate her in when she does this stuff. It's she's good. Yeah. She's good. The movie itself was any typical '90s Lifetime made-for-TV movie. It was it was not that great, but mm-hmm. she was man. I will recommend it just just because of her. Her performance. Because she is so good. Yeah. I I feel like I feel like she caught the essence of Ruth. <laughs> yeah, it's a very interesting read and it's long, but there was just so many victims and so many people's lives involved and there's a lot, you know. Yeah. So yeah, that is the very involved and and long story of the South Hill rapist, Kevin Coe. Wow. Yeah. He, he was a piece of work. So was his mom. The whole family. Yeah. I I just, I don't even have words. Like, it, it's just crazy. You're crazy. So we hope everybody made it through okay. I, I tried to not give too much detail. Is it just, I, I didn't need to be graphic, but, you know, it's hard. It's hard to get through, and that's yeah. it's very hard for some people to listen to, so... If you made it, thanks for sticking in there with us. Yes. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, 
Until next time, please, please, please stay safe. Be kind to one another. And, you know, stay out of the damn woods. Stay out of the woods. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. What Happens in the Woods is an independent podcast and is managed and produced by Gospel for the Rebels, LLC. Research and content are presented by host Jessica, with all editing and producing done by your favorite resident techie, Bryce. We believe in transparency and will always list our sources and information in our episode notes. We are always looking for new cases and stories to tell. We welcome your interaction with us on Facebook and Instagram at WHIT Podcast and at Twitter, What Happens in the Woods, INT2. Or if you prefer, our website is whathappensinthewoods.com. The campfire is open to all. Thank you for your continued support of our podcast. If you love us and want to continue to hear us bring you episodes, please share and like us wherever you can. But the best way to help us grow is to hit all five stars and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast fix. Until we meet again, campers, stay safe and stay out of the damn woods.